The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, Chapter 11, by Hannah Whitehall Smith. Difficulties Concerning Failures. The very title of this chapter may perhaps startle some. Failures? They will say. We thought there were no failures in this life of faith. To this I would answer that there ought not to be, and need not be, but as a fact there sometimes are, and we must deal with facts and not with theories. No safe teacher of this interior life ever says that it becomes impossible to sin. They only insist that sin ceases to be a necessity and that a possibility of continual victory is open before us. And there are very few, if any, who do not confess that as to their own actual experience, they have at times been overcome by at least a momentary temptation. Of course, and speaking of sin here, I mean conscious known sin. I do not touch on the subject of sins of ignorance, or what are called the inevitable sins of our nature, which are all met by the provisions of Christ and do not disturb our fellowship with God. I have no desire or ability to treat of the doctrines concerning sin. These I will leave with the theologians to discuss and settle, while I speak only of the believer's experience in the matter. There are many things which we do not innocently enough which we, hmm, there are many things which we do innocently enough until an increasing light shows them to be wrong, and these may all be classed under sins of ignorance, but because they are done in ignorance they do not bring us under condemnation and do not come within the range of the present discussion. An illustration of this occurred once in my presence. A little baby girl was playing about the library one warm summer afternoon, while her father was resting on the lounge. A pretty inkstand on the table took the child's fancy, and unnoticed by anyone, she climbed on a chair and secured it. Then, walking over to her father with an air of childish triumph, she turned it upside down on the white expanse of his shirt bosom, and laughed with glee as she saw the black streams trickling down on every side. This was a very wrong thing for the child to do, but it could not be called sin, for she knew no better. Had she been older and been made to understand that inkstands were not playthings, it would have been sin. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And in all I shall say concerning sin in this chapter, I desire it to be fully understood that I have reference simply to that which comes within the range of our consciousness. Misunderstanding, then, on this point of known or conscious sin opens the way for great dangers in the life of faith. When Misunderstanding, then, on this point of known or conscious sin opens the way for great dangers in the life of faith. When a believer who has, as he trusts, entered upon the highway of holiness, holiness finds himself surprised into sin. He is tempted either to be utterly discouraged and to give everything up as lost, 
or else in order to preserve the doctrines untouched he feels it necessary to cover his sin up calling it infirmity and refusing to be candid and above board about it either of these courses is equally fatal to any real growth and progress in the life of holiness the only way to face the sad fact at once, call the thing by its right name, and discover, if possible, the reason and the remedy. This life of union with God requires the utmost honesty with Him and with ourselves. The blessing that the sin itself would only momentarily disturb is sure to be lost by any dishonest dealings with it. A sudden failure is no reason for being discouraged and giving up all that's lost. Neither is the integrity of our doctrine touched by it. We are not preaching a state, but a walk. The highway of holiness is not a place, but a way. Sanctification is not a thing to be picked up at a certain stage of our experience and forever after possessed, but it is a life to be lived day by day and hour by hour. We may for a moment turn aside from a path, but the path is not obliterated by our wandering and can be instantly re regained. In this life and of walk of faith, there may be momentary failures that, although very sad and greatly to be deplored, need not, if rightly met, disturb the attitude of the soul as to entire consecration and perfect trust, nor interrupt for more than a passing moment its happy communion with God. The great point is an instant return to God. Our sin is no reason for ceasing to trust, but only an unanswerable argument why we must trust more fully than ever. From whatever cause we have been betrayed into failure, it is very certain that there is no remedy to be found in discouragement. As well met, as well might a child who is learning to walk lie down in despair when he has fallen and refused to take another step, as a believer who is seeking to learn how to live and walk by faith give up in despair because of having fallen into sin. The only way in both cases is to get right up and try again. When the children of Israel had met with that disastrous defeat soon after their entrance into the land before the little city of Aya, Ai, they were all so utterly discouraged that we read, Wherefore the heart of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall in their own routes and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? What a wail of despair this was. And how exactly is it repeated by many a child of God in the present day, 
whose heart, because of a defeat, melts and becomes as water, and who cries out, Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan, and predicts for itself further failures and even utter discomfiture before its enemies. No doubt Joshua thought then, as we are apt to think now, that discouragement and despair were only the proper and safe condition after such a failure. But God thought otherwise. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou upon thy face? The proper thing to do was not to abandon themselves utterly, utterly to discouragement, humble as it might look, but at once to face the evil and get rid of it, and afresh and immediately to sanctify themselves. Up and sanctify thy people is always God's command. Lie down and be discouraged is always our temptation. Our feeling is that it is presumptuous and even almost impertinent to go at once to the Lord after having sinned against him. It seems as if we ought to suffer the consequences of our sin first for a little while and endure the accusings of our conscience, and we can hardly believe that the Lord can be willing at once to receive us back into loving fellowship with himself. A little girl once expressed this feeling to me. With a child's outspoken candor, she had asked whether the Lord Jesus always forgave us our sins as soon as we asked him. And I said, yes, of course he does. Just as soon, she said, repeating doubtedly. Yes, I replied, the very minute we ask, he forgives us. Well, she said deliberately, I cannot believe that. I should think he would make us feel sorry for two or three days first, and then I should think he would make us ask him a great many times, and in a very pretty way, too, not just in common talk. And I believe that is the way he does, and you need not try to make me think he forgives me right at once, no matter what the Bible says. She only said what most Christians think, and what is worse, what most Christians act on, making their discouragement and their very remorse separate separate them infinitely further off from God than their sin would have done. Yet it is so totally contrary to the way we like our children to act toward us, that I wonder how we ever could have conceived such an idea of God. How a mother grieves when her naughty child goes off alone in disrepairing, dis despairing remorse and doubts her willingness to forgive and how, on the other hand, her whole heart goes out in welcoming love to the repentant little one who runs to her at once and begs her forgiveness. Surely our God felt this yearning love when he said to us, Return, you backslidden children, and I will heal your backslidings. The fact is that the same moment which brings the consciousness of sin ought to bring also the confession and the consciousness of forgiveness. This is especially essential to an unwavering walk in the life hid with Christ in God. For no separation from him can be tolerated here for an instant. We can only walk this path by looking continually unto Jesus moment by moment. And if our eyes are turned away from him to look upon our own sin and our own weakness, we shall leave the path at once. 
The believer, therefore, who has, as he trusts, entered upon this highway, if he finds himself overcome by sin, must flee with it instantly to the Lord. He must act on 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He must not hide his sin and seek to salve it over with excuses or to push it out of his memory by the lapse of time. But he must do as the children of Israel did, rise up early in the morning and run to the place where the evil thing is hidden and take it out of its hiding place and lay it out before the Lord. He must confess his sin, and then he must stone it with stones and burn it with fire and utterly put it away from him and raise over it a great heap of stones that it may be forever hidden from his sight. And he must believe then and there that God is, according to his word, faithful and just to forgive him his sin and that he does it. And further that he also cleanses him from all unrighteousness. He must claim by faith an immediate forgiveness and an immediate cleansing and must go on trusting harder and more absolutely than ever. As soon as Israel's sin had been brought to light and put away, at once God's word came again in a message of glorious encouragement. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. See? I have given into thy hand the king of Aya, and his people, and his city, and his land. Our courage must rise higher than ever, and we must abandon ourselves more completely to the Lord, that his mighty power may the more perfectly work in us all the good pleasure of his will. Moreover, we must forget our sin as soon it is thus confessed and forgiven. We must not dwell on it and examine it and indulge in a luxury of distress and remorse. We must not put it on a pedestal and then walk around it and view it on every side and so magnify it into a mountain that hides God from our eyes. We must follow the example of Paul and forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, we must press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let me recall two contrasting illustrations of these things. One was an earnest Christian man, an active worker in the church, who had been living for several months in an experience of great peace and joy. He was suddenly overcome by a temptation to treat a brother unkindly. Having supposed it to be an impossibility that he could ever so sin again, he was plunged at once into the deepest discouragement, and concluded he had been altogether mistaken, and had never entered into the life of full trust at all. Day by day his discouragement increased until it became despair, and he concluded at last that he had never even been born again, and gave himself up for lost. He spent three years of utter misery going farther and farther away from God and being gradually drawn off into one sin after another until his life was a curse to himself and to all around him. His health failed under the terrible burden and his fears were entertained for his reason. 
At the end of three years, he met a Christian lady who understood this truth about sin that I had been trying to explain. In a few moments' conversation, she found out his trouble and at once said, You sinned in that act. There is no doubt about it, and I do not want you to try to excuse it, but have you never confessed it to the Lord and asked him to forgive you? Confessed it? he exclaimed. Why, it seems to me I have done nothing but confess it and entreat God to forgive me night and day for all these three dreadful years. And you have never believed he did forgive you? asked the lady. No, said the poor man. How could I, for I never felt as if he did. But suppose he had said he forgave you, would not that have done as well as for you to feel it? Oh, yes, replied the man. If God said it, of course I would believe it. Very well, he does say so, was the lady's answer, and she turned to the voice, to the verse we have taken above, First John 1, 9, and read it aloud. Now, she continued, you have been all these three years confessing and confessing your sin, and all the while God's record has been declaring that he was faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you, and yet you have never once believed it. You have been making God a liar all this while by refusing to believe his record. The poor man saw the whole thing and was dumb with amazement and consternation. And when the lady proposed that they should kneel down and that he should confess his past unbelief and sin and should claim then and there a present forgiveness and a present cleansing, he obeyed like one in a maze. But the result was glorious. The light broke in, his darkness vanished, and he began aloud to praise God for the wonderful deliverance. In a few minutes, his soul was enabled to traverse back by faith the whole long, weary journey that he had been three years in making, and he found himself once more resting in the Lord and rejoicing in the fullness of his salvation. The other illustration was the case of a Christian lady who had been living in the land of promise a few weeks, and who had a very bright and victorious experience. Suddenly, at the end of that time, she was overcome by a violent burst of anger. For a moment, a flood of discouragement swept over her soul. The temptation came. There now, that shows it was all a mistake. Of course, you have been deceived about the whole thing and have never entered into the life of faith at all, and now you may as well give up altogether, for you never can consecrate yourself any more entirely nor trust any more fully than you did this time, so it is very plain this life of holiness is not for you. Excuse me. These thoughts flashed through her mind in a moment. But she was well taught in the ways of God, and she said at once, Yes, I have sinned, and it is very sad, but the Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and I believe he will do it. She did not delay a moment, but while still boiling over with anger, she ran, for she could not walk into a room where she could be alone. And kneeling down beside the bed, she said, Lord, I confess my sin, I have sinned. I am even at this very moment sinning, and I hate it, but I cannot get rid of it. I confess with shame and confusion a face to thee. And now I believe it, that, that according to thy word thou dost forgive, and thou dost cleanse. She said it out loud, 
for the inward turmoil was too great for it to be said inside. As the words, Thou dost forgive, and thou dost cleanse, past her lips, the deliverance came. The Lord said, Peace, be still. And there was a great calm. A flood of light and joy burst on her soul. The enemy fled, and she was more than conquered through him that loved her. The whole thing, the sin and the recovery from it, had occupied not five minutes, and her feet trod more firmly than ever in the blessed highway of holiness. Thus, the valley of Accor became to her a door of hope, and she sang afresh and with deeper meaning her song of deliverance, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The truth is, the only remedy, after all, in every emergency is to trust in the Lord. And if this is all we ought to do and all we can do, is it not better to do it at once? I have often been brought to a stand by the question, Well, what can I do but trust? And I have realized at once the folly of seeking for deliverance in any other way by saying to myself, I shall have to come to simply trusting in the end, and why not come to it at once now, in the beginning? It is a life and a walk of faith we have entered upon, and if we fail in it, our only recovery must lie in an increase of faith, not in an unlessening of it. Let every failure, then, if any occur, drive you instantly to the Lord, with a more complete abandonment and a more perfect trust, and if you do this, you will find that, sad as it is, your failure has not taken you out of the land of rest, nor broken for long your sweet communion with Him. Where, fail where failure is thus met, a reoccurrence is far more likely to be prevented than where the soul allows itself to pass through a season of despair and remorse. If it should, however, sometimes reoccur and is always similarly treated, it is sure to become less and less frequent, until it finally ceases altogether. There are some happy souls who learn the whole lesson at once, but the blessing is also upon those who take slower steps and gain a more gradual victory. Having shown the way of deliverance from failure, I will now say a little as to the cause of failure in this life of full salvation. The causes do not lie in the strength of the temptation, nor in our own weaknesses, nor above all in any lack in the power or willingness of our Savior to save us. The promise to Israel was positive. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. And the promise to us is equally positive. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. The men of Iah were but few, and yet the people who had conquered the mighty Jericho fled before the men of Iah. Aah. It's A-I, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It was not the strength of their enemy, neither had God failed them. The cause of their defeat lay somewhere else, and the Lord himself declares it. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and disassembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. 
Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies. It was a hidden evil that conquered them. Buried under the earth in an obscure tent in that vast army was hidden something against which God had a controversy, and this little hidden thing made the whole army helpless before their enemies. There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel, thou cannot stand before thine enemies until ye take away the cursed thing from among you. The lesson here is simply this that anything cherished in the heart which is contrary to the will of God, let it seem ever so insignificant or be ever so deeply hidden, will cause us to fall before our enemies. Any conscious root of bitterness cherished towards another, any self-seeking, any harsh judgments, any slackness in obeying the voice of the Lord, any doubtful habits or surroundings, these things or any one of them consciously indulge will effectually cripple and paralyze our spiritual life. We may have hidden the evil in the most remote corner of our hearts and may have covered it over from our sight, refusing even to recognize its existence. Although we cannot help being all the time secretly aware that it is there, we must steadily ignore it and persist in declarations of consecration and full trust. We may be more earnest than ever in our religious duties and have the eyes of our understanding opened more and more to the truth and the beauty of the life and walk of faith. We may seem to ourselves and to others to have reached an almost impregnable position of victory, and yet we may find ourselves suffering bitter defeats. We may wander and question and despair and pray. Nothing will do any good until the wrong thing is dug up from its hiding place, brought out to the light, and laid before God. The moment, therefore, that a believer who is walking in this interior life meets with a defeat, he must at once seek for the cause, not in the strength of that particular enemy, but in something behind, something hidden, want of consecration, lying at the very center of his being. Just as a headache is not the disease itself, but only a symptom of a disease situated in some other part of the body. So the failure in such a Christian is only the symptom of an evil hidden in probably a very different part of his nature. Sometimes the evil may be hidden even in what at a cursory glance would look like good. Beneath apparent zeal for the truth may be hidden a judging spirit, or a subtle leaning to our own understanding. Beneath apparent Christian faithfulness may be hidden an absence of Christian love. Beneath an apparently rightful care for our affairs may be hidden a great want of trust in God. I believe our blessed guide, the indwelling Holy Spirit, is always secretly discovering the, these things to us by continual little checks and pangs of conscience, so that we are left without excuse. But it is very easy to disregard his gentle voice and assist insist upon it ourselves that all is right, while the fatal evil continues hidden in our midst, causing defeat in most unexpected quarters. A capital illustration of this occurred to me once in my housekeeping. We had moved into a new house, and in looking it over to see if it was all ready for occupancy, I noticed in the cellar a very clean-looking cider cask headed up at both ends. 
I debated with myself whether I should have it taken out of the cellar and opened to see what was in it, but concluded as it seemed empty and looked clean to leave it undisturbed, especially as it would have been quite a piece of work to get it up the stairs. I did not feel quite easy, but reasoned away my scruples and left it. Every spring and fall when house-cleaning time came on, I would remember that cask with a little twinge of my housewifely conscience, feeling I could not quite rest in the thought of a perfectly clean house while it remained unopened, as how did I know but under its fair exterior it contained some hidden evil. Still, I managed to quiet my scruples on the subject, thinking always of the trouble that it would involve to investigate it. And for two or three years the innocent-looking cask stood quietly in our cellar. Then, most unaccountably, moth began to fill our house. I used every possible precaution against them and made every effort to eradicate them, but in vain. They increased rapidly and threatened to ruin everything we had. I suspected our carpets as being the cause and subjected them to a thorough cleaning. I suspected our furniture and had it newly upholstered. I suspected all sorts of impossible things. At last the thought of the cask flashed on me. At once I had it brought up out of the cellar, and the head knocked in, and I think it's safe to say that thousands of moths poured out. The previous occupant of the house must have headed it up with something in which bred moths, and this was the cause of all my trouble. Now I believe that in the same way some innocent-looking habit or indulgence, some apparently unimportant or safe thing about which, however, we have now and then little twings of conscience, somehow, which is not brought out fairly into the light and investigated under the searching eye of God, lies at the root of most of the failure in this interior life. All is not given up. Some secret corner is being kept locked against the entrance of the Lord. Some evil thing is hidden in the recesses of our hearts, and therefore we cannot stand before our enemies, but find ourselves smitten down in their presence. In order to prevent failure or to discover its cause, if we find we have failed, it is necessary to keep continually before us this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me beg of you, however, dear Christians, do not think, because I have said all of this about failure, that I believe in it. There is no necessity for it whatever. The Lord Jesus is able, according to the declaration concerning him, to deliver us out of the hands of our enemies, that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Let us then pray, every one of us, day and night, Lord, keep us from sinning and make us living witnesses of thy mighty power to save to the uttermost. And let us never be satisfied until we are so pliable in his hands and have learned so to trust him that he will be able to make us perfect in every good work to do his will working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.